Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The gospel of hope. Hope. The certain expectation of something good that is going to happen for believers in the future. I gave you a positive explanation for verse 5. I would like to remind you as you think upon that verse, and for those of you that would like to see other angles, there is the angle that God's power does not keep His elect in faith because the faith of some of God's elect is overthrown. Second right. Timothy 4.18, in a context of the second coming of Christ, said that the faith of some was overthrown. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Amen. So whatever is in verse 5, it can't be talking about our faith keeping us in the book of life or some eternal, legal, vital, or final phase of salvation because our faith can be overthrown. Our faith can be tried. Our faith can be weak. Uh, we can depart from the hope of the gospel. And so the Bible teaches us that. Faith does fail at times. And there are many cross-references to that fact. We, we are to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. If the departing from the living God can never happen to one of God's elect, why would we ever exhort one another daily while it is called today? And we could go on and on. Um, there's, there's 20 or 30 good references of losing faith, which remind us that what is being covered in 1 Peter 1.5 is a practical phase of salvation of God keeping His elect believers between that time when they're born again and they believe and they're given that lively hope and they, they gain that lively hope all the way until they meet Christ, whether it's by death or Christ's coming, in there God keeps them by His power through their believing. Their believing accesses the power of God. He sustains them and helps them. Maybe one, maybe another reference right within the book of First Peter. Look at First Peter chapter five on this point and see some different wording. First Peter five ten. But the God of all grace. That certainly is what First Peter one verses two through four is all about. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. There's God's work in saving us and guaranteeing heaven for us. After that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. How does God do that to a person? To make them perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. By the power of God through their believing. Through believing, we realize God's power for the spiritual progress and fulfillment and advancement and the perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling of our souls. We were given the earnest of the inheritance of the Holy Spirit. After that, we believed. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And I said this earlier, but what does that Spirit do? That Spirit, by His power, is able to increase us in love, joy, peace, hope, and all the other virtues that uh, the Lord is able to give His children and, and does give His children and strengthens them with all might in the inner man. You know, there's many verses that I have here before me that I'm trying to narrow down to just a few. I like this one. I, I started today off with Second Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, but verse 16 is this. For which cause we faint not, the apostles, the, we, for this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Amen. What renews the inward man day by day? The power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit as we believe. If we can make it to a day and only believe, as Jesus told Jairus, the power of God is able to renew our inner man day by day. And haven't we found that to be true? That God gets us through life how many days at a time? About one. And sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And we're thankful for His grace to get us through that one. Let us go to verses 6-9. through nine. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. 
Let me read these four verses to you. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Let's come back to verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. The wherein has got to apply to everything from verse 2 down through verse 5. Everything the apostle has listed about God's work guaranteeing their salvation is in, in, in that they're greatly rejoicing. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. What the election of verse 2, the justification in verse 2, the sanctification of the Spirit, God regenerating them in verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, they're being begotten again in verse 3, their inheritance in verse 4, God keeping them, His power available to them, everything that's been listed, they were greatly rejoicing. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Paul is writing to these scattered strangers in these five provinces, and he already... Peter is writing these scattered strangers in these five provinces, and he already knows their reputation. He knows of them that they are greatly rejoicing. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. I know that you love the gospel that's been preached to you. You have embraced it. You have left the Jewish temple worship in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're greatly rejoicing. Brethren, are we greatly rejoicing in the gospel? Do we barely make it to church? Do we barely rejoice? Or are we greatly rejoicing? The things that I have slowed down to review with you in verses 1 through 5 should cause us to greatly rejoice. It's all that's been declared in verses 1 through 5. Great joy should and will result when the eternal inheritance of the elect is fully understood. If we learn these things that are listed there that we have been over, and if we think upon them, and if we believe them, and if we make them the object of our hope and affection and attention, they will cause us to greatly rejoice. What a great religion. How much rejoicing could you mothers do when you were when your husbands were offering your children in sacrifice to an idol of Canaan. Our God offered His own Son for our salvation. We don't have to offer our sons for our salvation. What a difference it makes. What a difference. Our religion is a great religion because it results in great joy to be a Catholic and to always be wondering... Have I said enough Hail Marys? Have I been through the rosary enough times to get my husband who's died out of purgatory into heaven? Always wondering. Always worried. No finished work of redemption. We have a finished work of redemption. We have an eternal inheritance in heaven and we're not going to purgatory. I'm not going to purgatory to be refined, to be made fit for heaven. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for all my sins and all your sins. And we're going to go straight into heaven. And if we've made our calling and election sure by doing these things, it tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11, an abundant entrance shall be ministered unto you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is not ordinary joy, even of a high kind of ordinary joy. This inheritance is unbelievably good. It's great joy, great rejoicing. And we should be greatly rejoicing. This great joy can occur even when the saints are enduring affliction. Because this sixth verse, in the last part of it, speaks of the heaviness that was upon these believers. This is more than inward serenity or contentment. It is outward in praise and gratitude 
and celebration of God's goodness toward them, wherein ye greatly rejoice. Second time in the last five minutes. That is why I went slowly through verses 1 through 5 so that we as a church could greatly rejoice in these words, in these phrases that we have here. Great joy for a church. A really excited church. A truly happy church. A bouncing church. A thrilled church. From Psalm 92, I love the words, I will triumph in the work of thy hands. Triumph is about as loud and as positive as you can get. I will triumph in the work of his hands. And what's the work of his hands for the New Testament? The work of redemption. Think with me. What really makes a happy church? Is it personalities? No. Is it programs? No. Is it doctrinal truth made manifest to your consciences producing hope? Yes. If we, as a group of believers that God has brought together and put in this church, embrace the gospel and believe it and set our affection on things above and love passages of scripture like this, that tell us what is coming, it should create the happiest, most joyful church we could ever be. It is not personalities. It is not programs. It is not entertaining sermons. It is the doctrine that is conveyed that carries with it the truth of the gospel that brings life and immortality to light. That is what should cause our joy. Our joy cannot be drummed up by an enthusiastic speaker. Our joy cannot be drummed up by programs or inventions Our joy should be raised by having the gospel preached to us. Because these are glad tidings of good things. But our minds get so distracted with things of this life. And we want to keep these first. And when we come into this house, we want to keep them first. And when you're away from here and you're going to text someone, text them a word from 1 Peter 1.4. Text them incorruptible. Because if you looked in the mirror that morning, you had done some corrupting overnight. Oh, and let's just rejoice in these things. Uh, When I look at this expression, wherein ye greatly rejoice, and I realize, you know, we are not treated as third class citizens in America. Well, don't, don't, don't run off on some political bandwagon right now. Just, you know, we're not persecuted. None of us are in prison. We're not praying for anyone to be released from prison. No one's been whipped in the last month. Uh, beaten by the Romans or whipped by the Jews or stoned or anything like that. We're not third-class citizens like these brethren that are here in this passage, and they were greatly rejoicing. We can greatly rejoice. Then it goes on to say, though now for a season. So it was happening to them. Though now for a season, a little while. You know, even if afflictions and trials lasted your whole life, how long is it according to Second? Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. But for a moment, even if it was your whole life. But this is talking about the seasons of persecution and affliction that come, that ebb and flow in our lives. Good things happen and we rejoice. Bad things happen. They're always going to happen. We live in a sinful world and we're all sinners. And whenever we get together with our spouses, we create more sinners. And when there's sinners trying to live together in the same place, sin's going to result. And when sin results, there's going to be trouble, pain, misery, sorrow, and heaviness. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Ordinarily, trials and afflictions ebb or end. It's rare that intensity of afflictions continue on, though some do end up laying down their lives. There are seasons, times, or stretches in which the combination of trials that the Lord's going to bring your way are severe. The heaviness is going to lie on you. That's when we want to only believe. That's when we should still rejoice to be like these noble brethren that are a great example to us. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though. You know what that word though means. There's stuff happening in your life that is not consistent with greatly rejoicing. Everyone in here, has things in your life that are not consistent with greatly rejoicing. 
I would recommend to you. I speak as a fool. I mean stronger language than that. I recommend to you that you greatly rejoice because He can bring pain to bear in your life that you cannot imagine right now. He can crush what you think is bad and make it worse. He knows you better than you know you. Let's greatly rejoice. God is greater than man, and when we're dealing with the Lord of glory, He can bring us low. But let's rejoice so we don't have to learn the lesson the hard way. Let's just go ahead and rejoice like these brethren did, though now for a season they had been troubled. If need be. If need be. What does that mean there about the trials that were coming upon these brethren? God loved them so much as verses 2 through 5 describe, and they are rejoicing, though they are suffering, suffering some tribulation. What does it mean if need be? The context answers if need be by telling us that the trial of their faith was necessary for that faith to be perfected when they met the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we do not need to go running all over the Bible to come up with the four reasons why bad things happen to Christians. That is an outline on our website. You can go type in why bad things or bad things. And it will show you that outline. We have an explanation right here why there is suffering of, and seasons of suffering upon God's people. It's to try their faith to make that faith better so that when they meet Jesus Christ, that faith can be praised, honored, and gloried. As it's going to tell us in verse 7. If need be. The need's disclosed right here in context. The more we focus on Christ's coming, the holier we're going to live, and the better meeting Him will be. A good man has said, God cannot trust me with health or money, so I am poor and afflicted. Now that's a good attitude. God cannot trust me with health or money, so I'm poor and afflicted. Because He can trust me better and I can live better that way. Do you remember the martyr? And I've referred to him a number of times today because it was perfectly appropriate. Do you remember how that young martyr said, God has made the better choice for me. The better choice meaning, take me into heaven and get me out of this fleshly body because I could have, if allowed to live, been a lover of pleasures more than a lover of God. I could have departed from the living God if He would have allowed me that space of time. Therefore, He made the better choice. And that's just a wise attitude, and that is a godly perspective on life. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Manifold, many and varied. And if we were all to write in a three-by-five card the weightiest things that are heavy to us at this point in time and to take a collection of them, we would find a wide variety of things that are bothering us and weighing upon us. And I don't think anyone in here would have trouble thinking of five. So it's many and varied, manifold temptations. And these temptations are not so much, hardly at all, a temptation to sin, but difficulties brought upon the life that threaten our faith, that threaten our hope, that threaten our joy, and that threaten our peace. And if we go through this epistle and look, look at chapter 2 and verse 12. I just want to take you on this, and maybe I won't have to do it in the future. I want you to know that these people were persecuted. Verse 6 says that now for a season... They had heaviness lying upon them, so the first chapter gives it away. When we look at verse 1 of the first chapter, it tells us that they were strangers scattered. So they didn't have a big body. They were Jews living among Gentiles. They were a persecuted minority. So we already see that in chapter 1. But look at chapter 2 and verse 12. 2.12 Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they were being persecuted. Gentiles were calling them, oh, those wicked Jews, or those wicked Jewish Christians. Chapter 3 and verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror. There was terror in their lives. And we live in peace, neither be troubled. 3.14, look at 16. 16. 
having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. The will of God being so is that God would punish these believers for their their well-doing. That as Christians they would suffer. Verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And so there's suffering in every chapter of this epistle. Chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. It is not strange. It is not unusual. It is not weird. It is not different for God's saints to suffer. And so we have that 12th verse. And the fiery trial that was to try them. In verse, all the way down through verse 16, it describes suffering. And I was here recently with you. They're reproached in verse 14. Suffering is in verse 15, verse 16. Yet if any man suffers a Christian, to be a Christian meant that you were going to suffer. Chapter 5 and verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while. See, there's that for a season. After you have suffered for a while. Every chapter. Now, now do you get a context for the audience of this epistle? This gospel of hope that the apostle is laying before persecuted, reproached, suffering, fiery trial, burned up, killed, martyred believers that there is something better coming. And if you believe that strongly enough, then you can die a martyr's death where you think it's God's better choice for you and you're excited because you have a Christ to go to and you're going to meet Him that day. Amen. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Skeptics would have a heyday with verse 6 because how can heaviness lie on someone and then rejoice greatly? Some doubtful Thomas types have problems with the text anyway. How can I be heavy and rejoicing greatly at the same time? Anybody ever, anybody ever had that before? That there are certain things in your life that are weighing heavily upon you and they're pressing you down, but there's a spirit inside you that isn't pressed down at all. It's rejoicing greatly. And that is how we want to live. The things that press us down, the heaviness is going to come. If we keep these things in our sight, we can rejoice greatly even when they come. Present pain is so short and incomparable to heaven as we read earlier today. Present pain is God's method for perfecting us. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers' temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And patience makes you perfect. So let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire. There are good reasons to rejoice in the suffering that God allows us to have. Nothing happens in this world without God's oversight of it. Nothing happens without God's predestinating purpose bringing it to pass. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. If it happens, God has allowed it to happen. If you're partly responsible for it, then confess your sins for being involved in that. And bless God for all the good things He's done for you. Count your many blessings. And count what is coming in the future that will put all that suffering in the shade. There are limited purposes and reasons for Christian suffering, and they're all... Very good. That's the wonderful thing about a Christian suffering. They're all very good. If it's to try our faith, that is good. If it's to chasten us and show God's love for us, that is good. If it's affliction to get us back in the way of righteousness, that is good. If it's for God's glory, that is best. Lord, glorify Thyself through us. But, O Lord, while You're glorifying Yourself through us, glorify Thyself to us and have mercy. Christians should remember these principles and examples of Scripture for joy in tribulation. Learn those places in Scripture where there's an eternal reversal of fortune. Psalm 73, Asaph was looking around at all the wicked and seeing their prosperity, and he said, why in the world am I living a a life of self-denial to be a Christian when these wicked people are living happier than I am? And look at, their eyes stand out with fatness, and they're, they're so happy, and they're strong even at the time of death. Why should I serve the Lord? And then I went into the house of the Lord and found out that, uh, yes, 
The Lord's going to have a great reversal of fortune. He's going to send them to hell and He's going to receive me into glory. See, we need to remember that. He's going to re- we've had that explained to us in Saul, from Psalm 92 and Abraham, the rich man, and Lazarus already today. Learn those places in Scripture that I would have faded unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord. Learn those places in Scripture that even where there's six descriptions of economic failure, you can dance on your high places. How can you dance in your high places? Yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Let's learn not to be like Job, who could have ended his trial much earlier by humbling himself before the Lord. Can you count your blessings? Now remember, when we count our blessings, we typically do this. My car broke down. Then my cell phone broke down. This is typically how... The young man didn't do it. I'm just using current events. My car breaks down. My cell phone breaks down. Well, I've got a decent wife. I've got a decent house. I've got a decent job. I've counted my blessings. It's three to two. (laughs) What this passage is teaching us is let's count our blessings, and they're not the kind that I just listed. Do you know what they are? Inheritance. Incorruptible. Undefiled. That fadeth not away. Reserved. Begotten again. Lively hope. Resurrection of Christ. Election. Foreknowledge. Sanctification of the Spirit. Obedience, sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Now how many do we have? We have 15 verses 3 verses 2 and the 15 crush everything in their face. That is what we need to do. That's what these people were doing. That's what that martyr was doing that we've heard about today. That is what we want to do. I want to make these verses as plain and as practical to you. When we go out of here, there are heavy things weighing on you. There are heavy things weighing on me. But let's rejoice greatly. If we count up our blessings and we make the counting spiritual blessings, they are enormous. They are of an enduring substance. They are an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We tend to do what I illustrated. We can do better than that. And that doing better than that, if we all were doing it, we were all helping each other, like the 1 Peter 1-4 text. Some of you love to text. We might as well use it. Let's text. And use some of these words and phrases from this passage of Scripture. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Do you know that your faith in the face of temptation is how God gets His greater glory? Do you know that God's power and strength cannot be shown until you're in trouble? Do you remember what God did to the Apostle Paul? He sent him a thorn in the flesh that buffeted him. He begged God three times to take away this satanic messenger, whatever it was, in his body, in his flesh, that buffeted him. Take it away. But then the Lord came to him and said, My strength... What was that that fifth verse all about? who are kept by the power of God, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, and we don't know what it was. You know, we could play all sorts of games. You know, it could have been diabetes. But he didn't have a pump. It could have been that he was bent over for the rest of his life. It could have been blindness. You cannot prove that it was blindness, though some think they can from Galatians chapter 4. But it was some messenger of Satan that buffeted him that he did not want in his life. But God came to him and said, My strength is made perfect in weakness. You know what Paul said? Therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities. Now I'm excited. Because what is happening to me is I glory in these things that are happening to me. Because when I am weak, then am I strong. Who gave him that strength? The power of God. He believed what God said to him, that through trials and temptations, he could show his faith better than through prosperity. When a person is being pounded and pummeled, and that person is rejoicing, did we all get lifted up by the story of the martyr? Because he was facing imminent death, but look at his joy, look at his hope, Look at his expectation. Look at his faith. We saw the power of God coming through his life. And when something negative happens in our lives, and it will, and it has, and it shall, then we should rejoice in it and show God's power flowing through us. And the more we do it, the more power will be available to us. 
that the trial of your faith, trial, trial equals experiment, trial equals test, that the test of your faith, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Faith is much more precious than gold. I love the word use of the word precious here because gold is referred to as one of the precious metals. The most precious metal they had in those days. And yet, faith is more precious than that to have it. You know, the world wants to seek to have gold that they can clinch, but we want faith. Much faith. More faith. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Faith is more precious. Faith is a gift from God. God has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. And we want to be rich in faith. And we want to believe. And we want to increase our believing. We want to feast on the Word of God because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We want to understand these verses. We want to embrace them and we want to increase in our faith, which is our confidence and trust in God and all of His words and promises to us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. While our natural eyes cannot behold heaven, cannot see Christ, cannot see the angels that are in this room, they're, fl- they're, they're packing this room. The Lord Jesus Christ is walking here by His Spirit around His candlesticks we cannot see. So we want an increase in faith, which makes all those things evident to us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, gold over time perishes, and it will all perish in the end, but it perishes slower than many metals. And yet, it perishes in, com- in comparison to the faith that we want tried by the fires of God. And gold is tried by fire. How do you prove that gold is 24 karat? But by applying fire to it to see what impurities come out of it. How do we find out about our faith? Fiery trials have to be applied to us like this epistle describes to see if we're still going to believe. If we get rattled, and if we get pulled off the hope of the gospel, and if we get bitter, and if we start complaining, and we start speaking things that we should not because something evil has happened to us, our faith is weak. If thou faintest in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. So these trials come to build us up. And we want to be ready for them. And if we keep our eyes focused on the good things that are coming in the future, then the little things that happen to us in this life, even if they're painful, can be overcome. We can be overcomers. Jesus Christ addressed those seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and and told them that if they would be overcomers, He would bless them with all kinds of blessings and rewards. We want to be overcomers. That the trial of your faith, that's why, brethren, that is why you're having heaviness through manifold temptations, even though it's for a season, even though you're greatly rejoicing, these negative things that are happening to you are the trial of your faith because God values your faith. It's more precious to Him than gold. Gold is tried by fire. God is going to try your faith by fire because the goal is this, that your faith might be found. When Jesus Christ comes, Jesus said in one place, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. When Jesus Christ returns, we want him to find faith in this church, but we don't want him to find ordinary faith. We don't want him to find low faith, high faith. We want him to find this kind of faith that's in the second half of verse 7, that our faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Well done, thou good and... How do we do that? we got to have some trials in our life. Some negative events have to happen. And we've got to rise above them. And we've got to rise through them by the power of God by believing. Are you still with me with Jesus looking into the eyes of Jairus? Be not afraid. Only believe. And resurrection power was sitting there ready to interpose upon that man's family. And Jesus took in Peter, James, and John and put all other men out. Said, get up. Then to the mother, feed her. She's hungry. It's wonderful. 
Amen. Only believe. But brethren, we've got to have fiery trials. And they're going to come. It's when, how severe, how long, and we leave that up in the hands of God. He's going to make those choices for us. Every, every one of you could fill out your three-by-five card, and I'm sorry. But I'm not very sorry because it's God's choice. And He is perfect. Our Father is perfect. He is trying to make the best children possible. And do you know why Jesus Christ hasn't come yet? So we can get through another few fiery trials and be better ready to meet Jesus Christ. Second Peter is going to teach us that twice in verse 9 and in verse 14, that the long-suffering of God should be accounted as His mercy toward us to get through some fiery trials with great faith, joy, peace, and hope. You want to get rid of things in your life that are hurting you? Or do you want God's richest blessings upon you? Then rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory over the temptations in your life. Now, brethren, let me give you a little grammar lesson and, and tell you another, another little problem. It's, it's not a big problem, a little technical difficulty in how we interpret Scripture. We have made our way through verse 7. I understand the Word of God that verse 9 connects to verse 7 and that verse 8 is a parenthetical element. Now let me remind you about parenthetical elements. They're called restrictive or non-restrictive. When a parenthetical element or an interruption is restrictive, that means it changes the meaning of the sentence. If it's just additional information that's provided, then it's called non-restrictive because it's not restricting or altering the meaning of the sentence. It's just providing extra information. Because see, in verse 9, it says, receiving the end of your faith. Is the end of our faith simply joy unspeakable and full of glory? Is it simply having not seen ye love? Is it simply in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing? No, those are all the things in this life. There is something else that is coming that is the end of our faith. What is the real end of our faith? It's the appearing of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we've got that word end in verse 9 to deal with, the end of your faith, and it's the salvation of our souls. Rejoicing with exceeding great joy, unspeakable joy, is not the salvation of our souls. The salvation of our souls is when Jesus comes and rescues us from this world, glorifies our bodies, and takes us into heaven. Because that is what has just been said at the end of verse 7. Notice at the end of verse 7, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The salvation of our souls occurs when Jesus Christ appears and takes us into heaven. But the apostle sticks in this element that he has bracketed off by two colons. Now ordinarily, a non-restrictive phrase is very short. And it is set off by commas, before and after. Do any of you remember any of this stuff? Just only another minute or two. Look at, first, look at verse 1. It's got one in it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is non-restrictive, so it's set off by two commas. Those two commas mean it's not germane to the sentence. Peter is the writer to the strangers scattered abroad. That's the sentence. That's the subject and the predicate. You don't need the an apostle of Jesus Christ, for that line of thought of subject and predicate stating Peter writing to these people. It's giving additional information about Peter that is not germane to Peter and his audience. It's just telling us a little bit more about him. And those commas tell us that it is an interruption. It is a non-restrictive phrase modifying Peter a little bit more. We do it all the time. In writing, we should have commas set or setting off our non-restrictive phrases and clauses uh, when we write. I'm, I'm saying we should. But the Word of God does use language. Now, when we come to verse 8, it is a whole bunch of information about these people that are described in verse 7. They're the strangers scattered abroad. And it starts out as a relative clause with that word whom, and it just gives us a bunch of information about them. Whom, having not seen, Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
So we have a bunch of information. The reason it is set off by colons is because it uses about four commas and a semicolon itself because it's a large non-restrictive phrase. It does not alter the sense and line of reasoning that the apostle is making from verse 7 to verse 9. Verse 7 says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, and here's the whole purpose of trials, might be found, your faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Do you see how nine goes with seven? This has bothered me for decades. It's how, and I'm sorry. You know, we want to pray for God to raise up ministers that have, they're twisted. Because you've got to rightly divide the word of truth, and we want to rightly divide the word of truth. It is, it is, if you want to pray for something about your pastor, pray for him to rightly divide the word of truth. I am tormented. And I do not mind the torment, and I will be happily tormented for the God of glory's sake. I want to rightly divide the word of truth. Verse 9 goes with verse 7. Verse 9 does not go with verse 8. Otherwise, the end of our faith is simply getting some unspeakable joy in this life. The end of our faith is heaven. The end of our faith is Christ's appearing. The end of our faith is to be with Christ in heaven. And so verse 9 goes with verse 7, and it is very ordinary and very normal to have non-restrictive phrases and clauses. It's just unusual to have such a big one in verse 8 and to have it set off by two colons because it's so large and it's already using commas and semicolons. My case is ended on that particular little thing. You know... I, I still go into verse 8 and it means everything that you want it to mean. I still go into verse 7 and it means everything you want it to mean. I still go into verse 9 and it means everything you want it to mean. We just don't get confused by t- attaching 9 to 8. If we attach verse 9 to verse 8, then the end of our faith is reduced to something that is in the practical phase in this life and that is not true. The real end of our faith and this whole, epist- this whole epistle, and especially the first half of this first chapter, is heaven. Heaven. So let's look at verse 8 just very briefly. I know the time is late. Just enjoy verse 8 a little bit. Whom having not seen. Whom having not seen. What do you usually need to do to love someone? Do you typically need to see them? You say, well, I found my wife by Christian Mingle. I'll bet she used a picture. And that is wonderfully, that's wonderful and fine. I found my husband through Christian Mingle. I'll bet there was a picture. Whom, having not seen, ye love. Oh, brethren, can we be like that? Peter had seen Jesus for three and a half years. These brethren, these scattered Jews that were up in Turkey, they'd never seen Jesus. And it says so. Whom, having not seen, ye love. Lord, help us to love you without having seen you. Do you remember doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas is in that room with the apostles who had seen Jesus. And Thomas says, until I see him, until I put my fingers in the holes in his hands, until I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Well, how long did that prayer request get? How soon did that prayer request get answered? Jesus was in the room. Thomas. My Lord and my God. Oh, that's a good ending. Thomas will forgive you. Yes, we refer to you as doubting Thomas. But as soon as you saw those glorified wounds, my Lord and my God. Will you do that when you're doubting something and the pages of Scripture are open and you see the answer to your dilemma? Will you say, my Lord and my God? Amen. Let's humble ourselves before the Word of God and see with the eye of faith the things that we cannot see with our eyes of flesh. Oh, these brethren loved. To believers, He is precious. 1 Peter 2, 7. Unto you therefore which believe He is precious. Is He precious to you though you've never seen Him? We'll admire Him at His coming. 2 Thessalonians 1, 10. Paul said that there's a crown of righteousness laid up for those that love His appearing. Do you love the appearing of Jesus Christ? Do you love it? Or are you more expectant? Are you more desirous of something happening to you on your job? Or in your family? Or in, toward marriage? Are you loving His appearing? There's a crown of righteousness laid up for such. If you love Jesus Christ, don't think of yourself too highly. He loved you before you loved Him. We love Him because He first loved us. 
If you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, here are God's favorite words for you. Anathema, Maranatha. Be cursed at the coming of the Lord. Anathema. To pronounce an anathema on someone is a curse. Maranatha. The coming of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16.22 ends with these words. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. People think we preach hard? Try Paul. What a way to end an epistle. Those are some gentle words. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. How much should you love Jesus? Above your love of others. If any man come to me and hate not father, mother, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, he is not worthy of me. We've got to love him above all others. How much should you love him? How about more than others love of him? Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? Peter had said, though all men shall be offended, I'll never be offended. So Jesus confronted him. Do you love me more than the rest of the apostles love me? Let's love him more. Let's exhort each other on. If there's anything that we want to ever emulate or have emulation in our lives, it's in the love of Christ. And never for our own praise, always for His. How can or should we measure our love of Him? How does the Bible tell us to measure our love of Christ? By keeping His commandments. May I share a little? Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I want to share a little. You might not. Maybe it's just me. Notice how Paul ends the Ephesian epistle with the last verse. Grace, Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Are there other ways of loving Him? Insincerely. What church is this? The church at Ephesus. What did Jesus Christ have to tell them just a few years later? You have left your first love. The little tiny warnings in Scripture, like that verse right there, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. When we read that, we should be convicted that we examine ourselves, reach deeper, reach higher, and love Him a little more sincerely and put forth more effort to keep Him as the sincere object of our love because that church fell away from their first love in Revelation 2, 1 through 5. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with the world. We struggle with the devil. Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, give us strength by Your Spirit to love Thee more than we ever have before. Whom having not seen, ye love. 1 Peter 1.8 In whom, though now ye see Him not, yet believing. The importance of faith, believing God and His words, especially about Jesus, is, is so crucial. Here it is, they hadn't seen Him, and yet they were believing. And it is that faith that was mentioned in verse 5 that it makes available to us the power of God, who are kept by the power of God through faith. And though these brethren had not seen Jesus, and it says in the middle of verse 8, though now ye see Him not, they weren't seeing Him yet, but yet they were believing. And may we be believers. You know, Jesus said to Thomas, after Thomas had said, My Lord and my God, Jesus said that, you know, you're blessed to see Me, but yea, rather, and greater blessing are upon those that believe in Me that have never seen Me. We have an opportunity to be greater than the apostles in our faith by believing in Jesus Christ because we haven't seen Him. Let's not look at not having seen Him as something to excuse less faith. Let's look at not seeing Him as a reason for greater faith. Because we have this, their writings about seeing Him. Let's believe. Let's love. And then it says, Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Where does unspeakable joy come from? And where does this fullness of glory come from when there's heaviness lying upon these believers? The power of God based on their faith. Because they ha- everything right here is about faith. In verse 5, it is introduced with the words through faith. But then in verse 
6 and 7, it's talking about the trial of their faith. And in verse 8, it's explaining they've never seen, but they still believe. This is all about faith. Us believing the promises of God. Us believing the words of God. Us believing the gospel of glad tidings of good things. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. What can faith in Christ do? Well, it took the Philippian jailer from suicide to great joy. Have you ever read about the Philippian jailer? You know, he pulls out his sword. He's going to kill himself. A few minutes later, he's at home. He's washed Paul and Silas. He's uh, fed them. And there's a word that starts with R. He was doing with all his house. He was rejoicing with all his house. Wait a minute. You were trying to kill yourself? Now you're rejoicing with your whole family? You're having a party atmosphere here at home and you were just trying to kill yourself? I mean, you are celebrating? What happened? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He believed. Faith changes men. You can rejoice with joy unspeakable. If you're not one of the happiest people others know, then you've missed the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Because see, that's where the power comes from. Are you, are you one of the happiest people that others who know you have ever met? We all should be. Who's going to be the happiest in your family? You say, well, God just didn't make me a happy person. Well, then meet Jesus Christ. He's made us all to be happy. It's the power of the Holy Spirit through us. Who's the happiest in your family? Oh, what a good contest we should and could have. And then to have it in this church, and not for the praise of man, for the glory of God. Because these people were rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and we can't let them get too far ahead of us in the Christian race, or we need to pick up the pace. So let's pick it up. If your joy in Christ is not what it should be, repent for your carnality and seek Him. I love John chapter 12, and I know that some of you do. Some Greeks came to a feast, and they found some apostles, and the, apostles, the impression is that the apostles thought that they should be content. And these Greeks said, we would see Jesus. Right. So they had to take Him to Jesus because these Greeks weren't impressed with apostles. They wanted the Lord. Amen. And if we meet the Lord, we should be happy. We should be ineffably happy. Joy unspeakable. The word ineffable means it, it's so good it can't be expressed. And sometimes in our songs, I can think of one right now that says that God is ineffably sublime. God is so sublime you can't describe it. And that's the way we ought to think about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit also used unspeakable for God's gift of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. The joy you have is your own and others Cannot mess with it. Proverbs 14.10 Oh, if you get the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart the way it should be, and I want, I want you to meditate on these verses. I want you to think about these verses. I want God, the Holy Spirit, to convict you, to convict me, that we would have more unspeakable joy in our lives. Unspeakable joy. Joy that we can't express. Joy that no one else can mess with. It's in our hearts because of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where we are delighting in Him. We are fully believing all of His promises that if He was not coming back for us, He would have told us, I'm not coming back for you. But He said He's coming back for us. And He's gone away to prepare a place for us. And we should be excited about that above anything else in life. There is no one else that should pull you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one like Him in heaven or in earth to be compared to Him. He's the fairest of 10,000. This is my beloved. He is altogether lovely. Song of Solomon chapter 5, verses 9-16. through Lord, help us. We struggle with our flesh, Lord. We struggle against the world. And Satan would take us away from loving his conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Heavenly Father, to love him more and to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Glory, when it's used like this, is to exalt, E-X-U-L-T. It means to get excited and celebrate, to exalt with triumph. 
To rejoice proudly. That's what the word glory means. It's full of glory. These third class citizens suffering fiery trials as Christians in all five chapters because they believed everything the gospel told them about their future in Christ rejoiced with joy unspeakable and were full of glory. This, there's so many verses I could turn you to right now about glory. You know that the Bible says, let not the rich man glory in his riches, the mighty man in his strength, the wise man in his wisdom, but let him that glorieth glory in this that he knoweth and understandeth me. That's that, ex, that's that excited exaltation, that's with a U, right. of being triumphant and thrilled and rejoice and just flat out rejoicing and delighting in God. It's called full of glory. Full of glory. Look at Psalm 63 and verse 10. This is not some New Testament thing. David had it. And do you know what it cost David? Oh, but it didn't bother David. You know, David was dancing with all his might and he hadn't married very well. He was out in that street. He had stripped down, got his royal garments off and he's dancing with all his might because David knew what glory meant. And David knew what joy unspeakable was all about. And David knew about the sun that was coming. Oh yes, David knew. David wrote Psalm 45. David wrote Psalm 16. David wrote Psalm 2. David wrote Psalm 110. David knew the Lord was coming. He knew how to celebrate. He knew how to glory. He was full of glory. Michael, his wife, looked out the window and saw him dancing out there and despised him in her heart. And when he got home, he had to listen to her mouth. And he said, well, I'll be in honor before all these handmaidens that you're so worried about. And he put her away for the rest of her life. Cut off the line of Saul completely, even indirectly through a daughter. Praise God. David knew how to glory and some people don't. What a difference between David and Saul and the effect that it had on their children. Even Saul's children, not Jonathan. But Saul's daughter Michael was profane like her father and did not understand glorying in the Lord. Let me share a couple of David's. Look at Psalm 63 and verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. Now kings typically have others rejoicing in them. But the king, speaking of David, the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Will you please notice with me that unspeakable joy, uh, joy unspeakable is connected to fullness, full glory over there in 1 Peter 1? Look at this verse. Look what's connected to show the close connection of glory and rejoicing. It says in verse 11, the king shall rejoice. So there's the joy. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. There's the glory. Look at 6410. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord. There's the joy. And shall trust in Him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. Glory is triumphant exaltation and boasting in the Lord. The Bible actually describes it that way in Psalm 34 to make our boast in the Lord. There's there's things to get excited about. You know, American, virile young men will waste their time boasting about cars and horsepower. I mean, Dodge has unleashed the 707 horsepower Challenger Oh yeah, let's memorize it. And these sports heroes, you know, what they can bench, what they can squat, how many touchdown passes they throw in a season. We get so excited and we boast about these things and we get all worked up about our heroes in the flesh that are throwing this weird little egg-shaped ball. What about the Lord of glory? When He hears that a girl that was sick at the point of death is now dead, be not afraid. Only believe. I'll show you something. That was resurrection power, not touchdown power. Can we get our eyes off this world and up there on His world? The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in Him and all the upright in heart shall glory. There is gladness and glory Tied together. Look at 105.3. You know, I do want you to be like David. When we meet the son of David, if there's a whole bunch of you to be like David, all glory to God and His Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit if He can make a bunch of Davids out of this assembly. Psalm 105 and verse 3. Glory ye in His holy name. Do you love the name of Jesus? 
Do you understand it? Did you read the, the, the few email exchanges that I attached to a recent update where I was asked about the name of Jesus in Acts 7.45 and the name of Jesus in Hebrews 4.8? Why is Joshua called Jesus in those two places? Because Jesus means Joshua, and Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Now, I can get excited about the name of Jesus, and I don't mean using it like Benny Hinn does. I mean by the sense of that word. The sense of the word of Jesus is a Hebrew word brought into Greek, brought into English, and it's Jesus. But if we back up into Hebrew, it is Jehoshua. The name that Moses gave his successor in Jehoshua, J-E-H-O. Does that help you understand what it means? J-E-H-O are the first four letters of Jehovah. And Shua, the suffix on that name, is salvation. They can talk about their Allah, Buddha, Vishnu, Rama, all they want, our glory in the name Jehovah. I am that I am. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Do you see how glory and rejoicing is tied together? Anyway, that's I didn't. That's First Peter one, verse eight at the end, where it says, "Rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." Brethren, can we do that? I want you to be glorying in our God. I want you to be rejoicing in our God, glorying in His Son Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in His Son, Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in His salvation. Rejoicing in the hope of glory. Receiving the end of your faith. What is our faith looking forward to? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't need any faith after He comes. It's the end of our faith. Because He's going to take us into heaven and glorify us. Our flesh is going to be gone. The world's going to be gone. The devil's going to be cast in the lake of fire. We shall be holy His. We shall believe everything He's ever said. We'll believe all the truth and the veracity of His being, His words, His promises, and the praise of Him we will give without any admixture of error or weakness or doubting. We will be full of faith in that great day. That is the end of our faith. We are waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the salvation of our souls. The context in verse 3 is a lively hope based on Jesus Christ's resurrection. When it says even the salvation of your souls, that's one of those places we got five options. Which phase of salvation is it at the end of verse 9? It's the final phase of salvation because of the word end in the first half of the verse. The end of our faith is that final phase of salvation. Verse 3 in this chapter calls it the lively hope by the resurrection of Christ. That's final phase. Verse 5 calls it the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the final phase. Verse 7 says that it happens at the appearing of Jesus Christ in the last four words. That's the final phase of salvation. And we could go forward and look at other verses. Look at verse 13. It says, which is the last part of the verse, which is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about the coming of Christ. His second coming that is much closer for us than it ever was for these scattered strangers in modern Turkey. Does it matter to you that your future is glorification in heaven rather than damnation in hell? Now the world tells us there isn't such a place as hell. God wouldn't ever punish a person The bad things that even happen in this life prove there is no God. And you know, if you listen to that enough, I want to remind you something. When you listen to that enough, you have a flesh that believes it. You have a flesh that wants to lay a hold of that. So the world's telling you, the flesh is laying a hold of it, and Satan is doing this. The minute that your spirit leaves this body, you will face Almighty God, and there will be a day of judgment, and you will either be in the lake of fire, or you will be in heaven. This is all. This is to believers. And the difference was enormous to them. The salvation of their souls. They knew that they had an eternal inheritance coming, that God had elected them from before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ had died for them in the fullness of time. And after their conception of their parents, they had been begotten again unto a lively hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has shown just how He's going to do it with Jesus Christ. He put Him in the grave, and He ripped Him out of that grave, gave Him a glorified body, put Him in heaven, and we're going to be right there ruling and reigning with Him. Brethren, how important is that to you? Does it affect your life? It should change our lives. Right. These are the 
glad tidings of good things, the salvation of our souls. If it matters to you, can you bless God like the first word of verse 3? Can you greatly rejoice like verse words 3 and 4 in verse 6? And can you be full of glory like the end of verse 8? Can we walk out of here rejoicing with joy unspeakable and being full of glory? We should. May the Lord bless us to be the happiest church that there has ever been for the glory of God, not for the praise of any of us, for the glory of God because we lay out the doctrine of future things the way the Bible shows it to us and we rejoice that God has saved us from the future of the rich man to the future of Lazarus. We should be the happiest church. We don't need personalities. We don't need programs. We need doctrinal truth and we need to believe it. Let's believe it. Only believe who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen.